Early in the Book of Mormon, we see a tale of sharp contrasts, Nephi's righteousness and Laman and Lemuel's murmurings and wickedness. Were the battle lines so clearly drawn, however? In writing that way, what was Nephi trying to say? And especially, what message was he trying to send to the generations that would follow him and the narratives that they would hear from Laman and Lemuel? Join us today in this class when we talk about Nephi's writings and a tale of contrasts and stories. Welcome to the Hidden Treasures Podcast, where we explore the rich doctrines of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Drawing on both inspired teachings and the latest research, we examine closely the revealed scriptures of the Restoration. Of course, opinions expressed here do not constitute official pronouncements of the church or its leaders. These classes are recorded live and taught by Kevin Hinckley. Thank you for taking a moment to subscribe and leave us a comment. And now, on to today's class. That said, uh, let's begin uh, today's class. We are slowly working our way through uh, uh, the Book of Mormon uh, at the, the glacier pace uh, as, as we try and look. And as we've, as we've talked about before, for, for those who might be new, there are advantages at times to reading the Book of Mormon quickly in one long stretch trying to get it done before Christmas or this summer or something like that. There are times when I think that's helpful. But, but always remember when we're doing that, it's a little bit like how fast can we eat the buffet? <laughs> mm -hmm. And we're just going to really eat, 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 fast, 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 get done. That was wonderful. But you're also aware of everything you had to skip on your way to, to finishing that. And so one of the things that we're doing, we're starting at one end of the buffet and slowly just picking out all the way through uh, to try and uh, see maybe some of the things that we've missed. Uh, so, uh, as we begin today, um, Lehi gets his uh, injunction, um, and it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. Why should he do that? Life is good. Why, why is he needing to leave Jerusalem? First of all, they were trying to kill him because of what he was preaching. What, why else? Yes, the Assyrian, the Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. They, they are marching down. Uh, they're already making their way uh, down through the top of Israel. They're on their way to Judah. Uh, the Assyrians had already conquered Israel and carried off the ten tribes. Uh, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and the Egyptians coming from the other side. So now the Babylonians are the big bully on the block, and they're on their way. Yeah. Did the Lord need the scriptures to leave the city too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about the scriptures in just a second. Because there were, okay? Uh, so, yes, we need to get those out of there before those get destroyed. Right. So... It, it later in Second Nephi, it talks about that there were lots of other prophets 
and, and that the Lord protected his father because he listened to the word of the, the Lord's telling him what to do. I'm thinking that there's a good chance there were other prophets that were told to depart too. And so this is a test of faith. When, when you're prophesying and telling people to repent, that's a little more of a clear-cut case than when the Lord tells a rich person, just pack up and move out of town. <laughs> and he doesn't even tell them, oh, by the way, we're taking you across the ocean somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Just move out. Yeah, Lehi was, or Nephi had been told that we're going to get you to a promised land, but there's no telling where that promised land is. Uh, and there were other prophets, although in the case of like Jeremiah, Jeremiah knew what was coming, but Jeremiah knew that he was supposed to stay and not go. Now, whether Ezekiel, for instance, knew, or Nehemiah knew that we're going to preach, we're going to stay, we're going to be here, but we're going to be carried off to Babylon. I don't know. We, we don't have necessarily from them. But there were a lot of prophets. And then the other thing that we kind of suspect is that there was some kind of a prophet council, that these prophets knew one another enough that they were probably comparing notes about what exactly was occurring. Uh, and because the Lord is speaking a lot, and as he always does, and he's been speaking for quite some time saying if you don't repent you're going to be destroyed and it would it would be obvious now this is one of those moments almost like a hollywood ending kind of thing that lehi and the family are getting out just in the nick of time um and we don't know the exact timing of when lehi leaves some scholars have suggested about 605 uh bc with the city falling at 587 uh, others have suggested that the first wave of people had already been carried off to Babylon uh, and before the final destruction there's a gap of uh, about five years and that Lehi might have left in between the first wave and the actual destruction of the temple. We don't know. But we know that, that the, the place is in turmoil and uh, Lehi is going to be told to, to leave. Um, and he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea. And he traveled in the wilderness of the borders, which are near the Red Sea. And he had traveled in the wilderness with his family. Yeah. With all due respect, not to the scholars, I'm just trying to figure out why he discarded the timeline that's given in the Book of Mormon, where it says he left 600 years before the birth of Christ. Yeah, that, that, the, that idea of the 600 years is actually comes later on in the scriptures, and there's some sense that, because the problem with, without going into great detail, is Zedekiah. And we know basically when the city falls in Zedekiah, and, and that's going to actually come later. There, there's some problems with the timeline. Uh, and, and you're right, different scholars will look at it uh, different ways. Yeah, it's up. So we know it's in that. We know that he's out of town already, right? Right. But, yeah. but we also know it could have been 10 to 13 years after he left. Easily. So. Easily. Could have. Now, it is interesting, though, sometimes without looking at the, at the Book of Mormon geography, you don't necessarily take in what exactly is occurring here. Okay? Um, this idea that he's going to come out of Jerusalem and he's going to go down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea. 
Oh, well, that's, that's easy. Just at, quick out of town. Uh, now, let, let me show you part of where he went, okay? That's there. Okay? Uh, I'm taking these from the top of Masada. That is the uh, red, that's the Dead Sea in the background, and we're about halfway. <laughs> yeah, for him to go through the more fertile parts, we kept looking then for, for the fertile parts, we're having a hard time finding that. And it's actually, if, if you're taking the most direct route, which it, from, from Jerusalem down to the shores of the Red Sea, driving at decent speed is about three and a half hours. Three and a half hours. And it looks pretty much like that other than this part, which is actually the top of Masada, and this is the Roman ramp. This is where the Romans came, and they built this ramp, uh, then built the war tower. They come up here, and then the Masadians are dropping rocks on it, and then the tower falls on them, and it burns their thing, and there's a whole, okay? But, but that, so if you're even going on the other side into the mountains of the Judean desert, there it is and you're trying to find the more fertile parts of the Judean desert. Okay, good luck. Um, more beauty. <laughs> this is the bottom part of the Dead Sea. And again, if you're looking for those fertile parts, you're gonna look hard. Now, every now and then you'll get one of these. These little wadis that might show up. And, and so when, when we're gonna talk about the Liahona probably next, next week, and they're trying to follow, they're going to go across trackless Judean desert until they get to the wadi. And we think that the Liahona would take them from water source to water source to water source. Um, now, the other problem, of course, with this also, this is the main track. And if you're trying to stay out of the way of wandering uh, bandits and people that are also fleeing Jerusalem and all that, the fertile parts might have been, again, over in the mountains, and you'd kind of have to know where you're going. Remember, when Nephi's going to go hunt, they're going to have to go up in the mountains to do it. Yeah? A few years back, I remember there was an article in National Geographic that talked about how there, there were these little watering holes that were about a day's journey apart, all the way down. Yeah. And you got to know where those are. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks so much. Yeah, because there were actually two trails. One is this one going down this side of the Arabian Gulf, Wadi to Wadi to Wadi, and that would have because that would have been well marked. The other one is the King's Highway, that goes. Oh, it's over on the other side over there near. Uh, as you're going up through Jordan, and it's where we think uh, Moses was and all of that, and that's where Petra is. Petra is right off the King's Highway up the other side. But again, the Spice Trail is gonna go on either side of these, right? So, so when, they're trying to, when they're trying to find their way, uh, it is no small feat to say, oh, let's just send the boys back. <laughs> let's go back, you know, we're talking about, okay, we made it to Houston, why don't you send the boys back to Dallas? And walk. And walk. 
That's right. So we'll see how they do and however long that that would have taken. And then they're going to go all the way uh, up to Dallas, get the plates, then they go all the way back down to Houston, and then what? Go get the girls. Back to Dallas again and back. Okay. Uh, I remember we had been driving when, when we did this trip, and, and we'll be there again in, in March, but uh, when you do this trip, you're just driving and driving and driving and driving, and you get to the shore of the Red Sea, and you go, wow, that is a longer stretch. Three and a half hours by driving, however long with a couple of camels it would take, is, is a killer. Now, of course, when you get to the shores of the Red Sea, it's nice. <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> All right, so here's the shores of the Red Sea. Uh, the... Uh, Five Star was not there at the moment. Uh, the, the town of Eliot over here, over on the other side over there. But, but this, is a, this is a long journey. And even then you can see it's still Judean desert. This was, no, this was no easy feat that they were asked to carry out. Where's that? Is that right here? That is right at the, that's right at the top of the Red Sea. Right on this side. Yeah, th this, is, uh, this is Aqaba. Oh, you're in Jordan there? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, we crossed into Jordan. This is Aqaba. Okay. So, kind of put in your head what's being asked here. Now, let, let me add one more. So, so what, we're, what we're told here is that um, my father then dwelt in a tent. Uh, there, there's an interesting uh, book that's out right now. This is, and, and this kind of borders a bit on, on speculation, so you take it as such. But here's, here's, here's what we know for sure. In 1830, um, Joseph Smith Sr. in Palmyra gives an interview um, to a man by the name of Latham. And Mr. Latham wanted to know about the rise of the Book of Mormon. And he saw, so he interviews Joseph Smith Sr., who gives him a lot of details about the Book of Mormon. It's obvious from the details that he's giving that he's not working off of the Book of Mormon that we have. He's working off of the lost 116 pages. His knowledge about what he's telling Latham is coming from stuff that we don't have. So that's why you have to look at it as speculation. This is Joseph Smith Sr. talking. Um, and, and that Latham's going to get some details wrong on this, but there are interesting little bits that it come out in Latham's article that he says he's hearing from Joseph Smith Sr. And, and one of those things that, that, there's a couple of things that jump out. One, he says, when my father dwelt in a tent, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. told Latham in that 1830 uh, interview that Lehi built a, a, a tabernacle, that he built a temple, a, a tabernacle in the wilderness, and that he modeled it after the tabernacle of Moses. And that when he finds the Leahona, it's outside th that temple that he's got to, that when he's going to read the Leahona, that he takes it inside the tent, and that's where the revelation happens. Uh, when he does sacrifices, he's doing sacrificing out in front of that tent temple area. Okay? Now, again, this is third or fourth hand information. But it's there's some plausibility there. You can see where that might have some truthfulness uh, to that. 
The, this book, uh, in case you're interested, uh, Don Bradley has written this book on the last 116 pages and what we know, and he's got the interview with Latham and, and all that. So you can read it and say, does some of this make sense? Does some of this doesn't make sense? This is Latham making stuff up. But there's some fascinating things in there, uh, talking about the book of Lehi. Um, but it would make some sense that certainly... Um, for a Bedouin in the desert, tents do become kind of sacred places. They are places of refuge. They're going to be places that safety occurs, but also where worship can occur. That, that part we would know. So sometimes we've laughed about it for, for our youth saying, okay, if you're going to memorize a, a scripture from the Book of Mormon, memorize this one. My father dwelt in a tent. <laughs> Isn't that great? Okay. There's real significance. Why would he take the time to say my father dwelt in a tent other than the fact that this tent had some great significance of some kind? Does, does that make sense? Okay. Because that's going to be kind of important. Look, look at what happens here. The first thing when they, after all this time, they finally get down, they, they camp near the shores of the Red Sea. He's going to dwell in a tent. What's the first thing he does now that they're safely out of Jerusalem? And it came to pass that he built an altar of stones and made an offering unto the Lord and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. Okay, that's, uh, that's interesting. Now, if you're a, uh, if you're a diehard, we, we, we talked, we've talked the last couple of weeks about the Deuteronomists. And that under Josiah, the reign of Josiah, that that the Deuteronomists came in and they, they, they tried to eliminate all other forms of worship anywhere else. So not only are they wiping out the, the uh, high groves of Baal and all of that, but they're also wiping out all of the Asherah shrines that the people really loved. Because where, where does worship take place under the Deuteronomists? In the temple. At the temple and nowhere else. Up to that point, again, we know from, the, from archaeology there's shrines all over the place. They were doing it all over until Josiah and the Deuteronomist came in and doubled down on all of this. Okay? So if, he's, if, if Lehi, who is of the tribe of Lehi, or Levi? No. Manasseh. He's not a Levite. If he's going to go down into the wilderness and he's going to sacrifice, and we have thank offerings, or, and which we'll talk about in a second, but if he also did peace offerings, that would involve the sacrifice of some animals, and we don't know whether he does that or not. The Book of Mormon doesn't necessarily say that. But if he did, now he's assuming a role that would really be jangling and offensive to who? Deuteronomus, especially who? Laman. Laman and Lemuel, right? Oh my gosh, we've just been hearing from the priest that you're only supposed to worship at the temple, and here he's doing at the very least thank offerings. What is involved in a thank offering? I'm glad you asked. From Leviticus, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. 
uh, and the peace offerings are animals. Uh, thank offering is, is separate. If he offers it as thanksgiving, which is what this is, what Lehi was doing, then he shall offer a thanksgiving sacrifice. He's going to offer what? Unleavened loaves mixed with oil. Unleavened wafers smeared with oils. Where do we know about uh, wafers? What else do we call wafers in, in the Old Testament? Manna. Manna. Yeah. You see the symbolism? And loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. These are the, these are the cake offerings and the oil, the drink offerings. And we talked about that last week, week before, two weeks, two weeks before, uh, that when, that when uh, Jeremiah is in Egypt and he's trying to talk to the refugees that fled Jerusalem when the Babylonians are coming, and he's asking, them, Your, our city is destroyed, and how come they're destroyed? You know, the people that are stuck there in Egypt say, well, yeah, it's because... When we burned incense to the queen of heaven, Asherah, and made cakes to worship her and poured out drink offerings unto her. And when you cut that off, then we got destroyed. They, they attributed the fact that you weren't letting us do thank offerings outside the temple. We were worshiping the queen of heaven, Asherah, Elohim's consort. Okay, And we, were, we loved her. But notice what they were doing, and, we, and from last time, remember, they would, they would uh, these drink offerings, there would be two pillars outside the, these, these shrines, and they would pour the drink offerings over the top of these pillars. And then they said, we would bake cakes to the Queen of Heaven, we would place that there. Those are thank offerings. What they were doing was offering thanks. Um, you see a little bit of the, the imagery of that if you go to uh, uh, Ephesus and they've got um, the shrine of, of uh, Artemis, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world, these massive pillars and everything. And they would get the little uh, statues that they were upset that Paul was going to stop their production of these things. Um, and, the, and then in their little houses they would have drink offerings and food offerings that they would offer to Artemis uh, for safety uh, because she would, she would protect uh, Ephesus, okay? And people would come from all over the Roman Empire to worship. So there's this long worship thing of, of cake offerings and oil offerings offered in thanks to the gods for, for taking care of them. So it would make, isn't it interesting that when Lehi is going to get there, uh, and he's going to finally find a place by the shores of the Red Sea. They, they made it safely through all of this desert and stuff like that. We're going to offer offerings. That's what we're going to do. We're going to offer thanks offerings. Okay? Sort of make sense? Yeah? I wonder if that verse and my intent is also symbolic of the fact that it's not a place with a solid foundation. That the intent is that he is going to be on the move perpetually until he reaches the promised land, which is something we should do in our lives too. Yeah, I, I, I love that imagery, isn't it? That says, well, I'm going to go where we need to go. And, and because we have someone like Abraham 
who never really had his own place, and Abraham was willing to go where he was asked to go and wander, and the children of Israel had to go wander, sometimes to find safety. Um, the Book of Mormon has a really great example of somebody willing to wander for safety. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Rather than fight the war, they would just kind of kept traveling north. You know, they would be willing to travel. So I, I, think, that's a, I think that's great imagery. Okay. All right. So we get there. Now, let me set this up because I think this frames how we're going to see the first part of the of, uh, first Nephi, especially. And in Nephi's dealings with his brothers. Sometime after the arrival in the promised land. Uh, so <coughs> at least probably a couple of decades. Uh, 1 Nephi 19. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded me, wherefore I did make plates of ore, which I might engraven upon the record of my people. And upon the plates which I made, I did engraven the record of my father, and also the journeys in the wilderness, and the prophecies of my father. <coughs> Somebody got a cough drop or something? Yeah. That'll work. Um, oh, we got all... I'll, I'll grab this one here. Okay? Thank you. I think I'll get it out. Perfect. Thank you. All right. All right. So remember that what we're reading from, what's been translated here is from the small plates. Nephi is going to make the large plates first. But then what's going to happen, he's going to engrave in all these records later, and he's going to go back in retrospect, and he's going to record what happened in those early days. And I knew not at the time that I made them, small plates, that I should be commanded by the Lord to make these plates. Wherefore, the record of my father and the genealogy of his fathers, the bigger record, the more part of all those proceedings in the wilderness are engraving upon the first plates, the big plates. Okay? Don't get too confused by the big plates and the little plates. The great big one is the one that he recorded everything from, and that's what Mormon is actually drawing his abridgment from. These are the small plates that came after the loss of the 116 pages. But they were written later. They're written in retrospect, looking back. Now, before Nephi begins to even write these small plates, let's talk about what has already happened. Laman and Lemuel begin as Deuteronomists. They are observant Jews. They weren't breaking Torah. But they gradually begin to rebel and begin to seek his life. They do repent from time to time. Sometime after the death of Lehi, they and their children will split off, and then guess who needs to travel and leave? Nephi and his family, okay? And Nephi's family are forced to relocate to avoid further violence. Now, why is this important? Let me give you a really kind of specious um, 
argument. Let's say that uh, in the early 1920s, maybe, you're living in Germany, and you're writing a story about your school chums. And one of your, and one of your fellow students is a guy by the name of Adolf. <laughs> and you're writing at the time about Adolf, this guy, Mr. Hitler, who's in our class. If you're writing at the time, and you're the same age, and you're talking about Adolf, you might say things like, well, he's kind of controlling. He keeps trying to grow a stupid little mustache. I don't know. <laughs> you know, he seems to have some weird ideas about the Jews. I don't know what all you might say. I don't know what Adolf was like. Okay, now, you would tell a story as Adolf is growing and you see the things that he's doing because you don't know what he's going to do in the future. Does that make sense? Now, what if you went to school with Adolf Hitler and you're looking, and, but you're going to write it after World War II? And now you're going to write the biography of Adolf Hitler and you're talking about him as, as a student in, in class. Might that change a little bit how you write this? Even then I could see, and even then, you know, and like, in other words, you had the benefit of looking back on what he did, and it would color how you would write about what he was doing. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, so, so let me bring that to this. If Nephi is going to write about what Laman and Lemuel are doing at the time they are doing it, large plates, you're going to have one set of stories. If you're going to write decades later, after you've arrived in the promised land and all that stuff has occurred, and you're going to write about Laman and Lemuel, your story of who Laman and Lemuel are and what they're doing and why they did it will be completely different. Does that make sense? Because you're looking in through the rearview mirror in, at the past. And that's what happens in 1 Nephi. Okay? So, Laman and Lemuel. So, so you get an example of this. Um, in fact, let me back up a little bit. So, what, let, let me add one more thing I should have added on here. There are these moments, uh, and, and one, one of the moments in the Book of Mormon is where Ammon uh, has started to convert Lamoni's family. You remember he's going to go off and rescue his brother Aaron and stuff like that. And they run into Lamoni's father, the king, and, and, the, and the king, Lamoni's father says to Lamoni, what? Where are you going with? The son of a liar, yeah, the robber. In other words, there is a narrative, there's a story that Nephites are robbers. W what did they rob? The birthright. The birthright. And that story, and, and when we're talking about Ammon and all that, I think we're talking about, what, 125, 150 B.C., something like that? Okay, we're talking about things that happened 
600 BC, so for at least 450, 500 years, this story has perpetuated and we'll find that it perpetuates for a thousand years. So is that story already rife when Nephi lands in the promised land? Yeah, that somehow Laman and Lemuel are going to say, it's our birthright, he stole this from us. Well, because he, he was obedient, so his father smiled upon him. And if, you, if you are Nephi writing in retrospect, yeah. listen how that's going to color how you write this story. <laughs> they were also complaining that he robbed them of all the symbols of authority. The brass plate, That's right. The Leahona, yep. Laban, which they thought were theirs because they were my birthright. In charge. That's right. That's right. So again, he's got to explain to his, first, his generations down the road why this narrative that Laman and Lemuel will tell is wrong. They didn't steal it. It would, but there's reasons for it. But in order for Nephi to do it, he's got to create a caricature. When, when, I, was, when I was in high school, um, we were still doing road shows. Remember the old road shows? And one of the things that we did in my ward in, in my, is that we, they let, those use, let us write the road show, uh, direct the road show, Produced the road show. I mean, they were really good about letting us do all of this. Okay? So what we did in our road show was that we created an old-fashioned melodrama. Okay? My, my, uh, f my friend who went on to, to create uh, the Purple Mattress, he was, uh, he was uh, Dudley Do-Right. <laughs> he was the white guy and he was all, we had him dressed in white and he was the good guy and he was going to rescue Marion from the railroad tracks. We had another guy that was snidely whiplash and he was all dressed in black. And we, and we wrote original songs, by the way, for all of these guys. In uh, talking to my, my, my friend Tony that did the Purple Mattress, he can still sing you the Dudley Do-Right song that we wrote for him. <laughs> I am Dudley Do-Right. Okay. <laughs> What role did I play, you ask? I was the head of the horse. <laughs> Which wasn't nearly as bad as my buddy who was the rear end of the horse. Because we had like a blanket over the top of us and I'm holding the head and, and, and Dudley Do-Right is riding on top of our backs as we come walking in and then we're falling over as, as we're trying to walk, the whole horse collapsed halfway across. Anyway, it's a great story. But we got this, but, but it was a melodrama that was really emphasis on the, the stark difference between black and white, and right and wrong. And, and the melodrama is all about those kind of things, right? Let me bring you first Nephi. <laughs> because Nephi writing in retrospect is going to make a little, he's going to make his character and he's going to make Laman and Lemuel a little bit one-dimensional to get the point across to later on that they did not steal the birthright. And watch how he does this. Laman and Lemuel. And thus Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father. 
They did murmur because they knew not the dealings of God who had created them. It's true that they didn't understand all of that. Okay? They were like unto the Jews who were at Jerusalem who sought to take away the life of my father. Okay? From the very first pages here, we get that Laman and Lemuel are the bad guys. And we're not getting a whole lot of redeeming qualities in Laman and Lemuel. Okay? Snidely whiplash. <laughs> okay? Now, what do we get from Dudley Do-Right? Who does no wrong. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, being exceedingly young, nevertheless being large in stature, <laughs> it just gets better, and having great desires to know the mysteries of God. And he does this within a couple of verses. What has he just done? He's just kind of established the characters, hadn't he? That you've got Laman and Lemuel that are all bad, and we've got Nephi who's all good. And he's going to give you the contrast between them. And some of the ways that you get that there's a little bit of a one-dimensional edge to this is the fact that, yes, when I look back on it, I was exceedingly young. <laughs> Nevertheless, being large in stature, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, for you, maybe. Yeah. We're going to get the moment, and I'll actually steal the thunder from it, because you know that it's there. Remember when he gets bound up in the desert, and they're going you know, to tie him up tightly, and he says, Lord, bless me that I may break these bands. You know, that I, can, I can show that I'm exceedingly large, and I can break these bands, and I will show great power, and they will know God's in charge. And then the scripture says, what happens? They fall off. <laughs> Lord bless that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just fall off. Okay? Because what you've got is, a, is, I think, even in his mind as a youth, he's, he's being told by the Lord two things. One, and we'll talk about this in a second, you're going to be a ruler over them. And two, there's going to be a promised land. Now, if you're young and kind of big, and you hear you got two promises. Hey, there's going to be a promised land, and by the way, you're going to be a king and ruler over them. Which one jumps out at you as a, as a uh, budding youth? I like that king thing. I like that king thing a lot. And I'm going to actually hear that king thing more than I'm going to hear the promised land thing. And we'll see as Nephi goes along, he gets better at that. Yeah. Well, there's also the theory that uh, he was apprenticed to a, uh, a metallurgist or a smith. Absolutely. Like his older brothers, being the ones to inherit the family business, were merchants like their dad or whatever. But he was pumping iron. Yes. And, well, and he knew iron. Because when, when we talk next week about uh, the, the slaying of Laban, is he more, what's he most interested in? Whoa! Check out this sword. The quality of the sword. Enough that ultimately Laman and Lemuel will think that he made the, Le the Leahona. And, and I'll show you where we get a, a, a suggestion of that. Okay? So, yeah, we think he was a metallurgist. He knew what he was doing there. Okay? But we get this contrast. And he's going to show this contrast to say, um, I'm not like them. And so we're going to get this. The, and he's going to actually take it one step farther. And this is kind of in retrospect when you're trying to tell the story. Okay? 
tells you also some, some kind of the young and naiveness of Nephi. Uh, verse 22 of uh, chapter 2. And inasmuch as thou keep the commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren. Oh, that's nice. Okay. Who else do we know has done that? Joseph of old. If you go to Genesis 37, remember, remember uh, Joseph sold into Egypt. Why? Well, and his brethren said to Joseph, Indeed, shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? Remember, in, in the naiveness of youth, remember Joseph running around going, God, bros, I had a dream. It was kind of weird. You know, you guys had stocks of wheat. I had stocks of wheat. Yours were bowing down to me. <laughs> Isn't that weird? <laughs> you know, you had cattle, I had cattle. Yours were bowing down to me. That is so odd. <laughs> well, and Dad gave me a new coat. You check out the, oh, yeah, I know it's the birthright coat. We, you know, we think it goes back a long ways, but nice coat. What do you think? <laughs> I can't believe that they would get mad at me. <laughs> well, and, and, and what you keep hearing from Nephi, even in some of the early discussions that he had with his brothers, is you guys are so bad and I am so good. You know, you, we just get this contrast of Dudley Do-Right and Snidely Whiplash. It's like the good and the bad. And, and so I, I think we have to be a little bit careful in just kind of immediately throwing Laman and Lemuel under the bus because they do progressively become worse. But sometimes Nephi, I think, had to look at it and say, and he does in 2 Nephi 4, the Psalm of Nephi, where he says, I was angry at my enemies. And I think what he mourns is how angry he got without maybe sometimes looking and saying, wonder if I could have said that differently. I wonder if I could have handled some situations differently. And it might not have been as contentious. It might have been. But I think he's looking at it and saying, could there have been some things I could have done differently? And demonizing his brothers didn't help. But it's something that you'd almost expect that a guy that says, hey, I'm kind of pumped up and I'm big in stature and I love God and they don't. <laughs> It ends up characterizing, not characterizing, character, characterizing it. Okay? Does that, does that sort of make sense? So, okay? And, they, and, and Joseph's brothers hated him all the more. Why? For his dreams and his words. We could be talking about Nephi, couldn't we? Man, you should see the dream I just had. I got to see the tree. It was really cool. Oh, you guys didn't see it? Well, why don't, don't you think God can answer you? What's wrong with you? Okay? Nephi didn't always help his cause. Now, let me talk, let me show you one other instance where I think we get this tension between Nephi and his brothers and it kind of comes out. And it comes after they're trying to go get the plates. And it came to pass that Laman was angry with me and also my father. Wherefore Laman and Lemuel did speak hard words. And, and by the way, the word uh, hard word in Egyptian, there's an Egyptian word I found from one of the scholars. Uh, it means staff or rod, but it also means to speak. 
Okay. And they did smite us even with a rod. Now that's kind of fascinating. They, they did smite me with a rod. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at this. And one of the things that I love about the Book of Mormon is, I, I, want, I want to show you two or three thing, ways to look at it, and then it's up to you to kind of struggle with it and see what you think. But let me give you a couple of options on, on this particular word. Because one of the things that we know from the small plates, they're small plates. That's why Mormon is saying, hey, we had to use Egyptian writing because we didn't have a lot of space on these things. So we're going to write this actually in Egyptian because we have no room. So if you're going to take time to say things like, my father dwelt in a tent, or they, our brothers beat us with a rod, you're throwing in additional details, or I'm exceedingly strong. You're throwing in additional details on a, on a place that have very small space. Okay, So this particular phrase, they did smite us with a rod. Uh, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Could have just been a stick. They were upset. He wants to still go back and get the plates. They're going to pick up any stick they can find outside of Jerusalem, beat him with it. Okay, that's possible. Okay. Uh, the second, though, is to understand in, in ancient, Egypt, in ancient uh, Israel, what role does a rod play? Think about... Think about the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in pastures. How does he protect me? Thy rod and thy staff. Now, remember, rod and staff, those are two different things. Staff is the shepherd's crook. I'm going to use that to help pull a small lamb out of a... That's the staff, okay? What's the rod? Well, the rod was a weapon. It was a weapon to beat off robbers. It was a, a short, sometimes short, had like a knob on the top and everything. With your strength, with your rod and your loving staff, with your rod and your staff, you comfort me. I'm comforted because you will protect me. You leadeth me beside still waters with your rod and your staff. And so rod, a rod actually, and then if you look at pictures of Egypt and you'll see the pharaohs, you, you'll see like King Tut and he's standing there and he's, what's he holding? A rod and a staff. You'll see the shepherd's crook in his case, now the Egyptian ones, that rod was a ceremonial rod and it would have kind of dangly things down on it. So it was not just a rod of, I'm going to beat somebody, with, but it was a rod of what? Ceremonial power. Whoever has the rod has the power. That was the battle between Moses and Pharaoh, whose rod's going to win out here. Yeah. So the iron rod is the word of God. Yes. Yes. And it seems to me that a shepherd can use his word to guide his sheep and keep them from danger if they will listen to Isn't that beautiful also? That's why I say that it's wonderful when you get, yes, there was, a, there was a rod, but when we talk about that the rod then symbolically then gets turned into the word of God, that that word of God becomes symbolic of the power. 
and protection. Yeah. Blood also was used uh, when they had camels. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, they hate that. Yeah, <laughs> when the boys went back up to Jerusalem on their two trips. They did it with camels. They yes. Camels. They yes. And, uh, so I think it was very likely that they had rods. That you ever heard a you ever heard a camel get hit by a rod? <laughs> Man, they hate that. <laughs> Okay, that's what they sound when they're trying to get up to. Okay, yes. So, so, th th so when we see, it's possible this was a stick, but it's also more likely that it was a rod. Now, what what I find interesting about that? Let me give you uh, uh, give you an idea. Uh, when we go back to Moses in the wilderness, they're having a battle between the. The, the different tribes as to whose tribe is the best, who's going to lead out, who gets to work in the temple, all of those kind of things, okay? How do, and, and they're just complaining like crazy, and it's driving Moses nuts, and it's driving the Lord nuts. These guys are just murmuring like crazy. So how does the Lord handle this? <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Okay, Num number 17. Speak unto the children of Israel and take every one of them a what? A rod. Okay, according to the house of their fathers, and write thou every man's name upon his rod. What they basically did was took 12 rods, one representing each tribe, write their name on it. Then what we're going to do, um, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi, for one rod shall be the head of the house of their fathers. So you got... So you got all of these rods, and we're going to then put them in the tabernacle overnight, and then we're going to come back the next morning, and what are we looking for? The one, the one that buds, right? And the one that buds will be the leader, or in this case, the, uh, in the temple, okay? And it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. Well, nice, okay? And, I, and, and then this, and I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, wherefore they murmur against you. Who else was murmuring? According to Nephi? Laman and Lemuel. Okay? Wherefore they murmur, they murmur against me, Therefore they murmur against you. And the Lord said unto Moses, after they go in the next morning, and Aaron's rod has budded, the others didn't, his rod wins out, bring Aaron's rod again from the tabernacle to be kept for a token against the rebels, and they shall quite take away their murmuring from me that they die not. And their response is, the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, We die, we perish, we perish. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Okay. So, so for when, when, these, when these guys, in Nephi's writings, when he's talking about rods, this is, there's heavy historical power behind this, and it opens up several different options in my mind. Could it have been a stick? Yes. 
I also happen to believe that the angel comes that to yell at him is female. I think it's a mom. Oh yeah. Who is showing up and going, stop beating your brothers with a stick. <laughs> Knock it off. Mama. You guys laugh because you guys have done that. Totally. Yeah. The stick referred to the, the genealogy and the writings of Judah. Yes. Right. It has great power, right? Okay. So let me give you option number two. Could have been a stick. Option number two. If Lehi is going to send the boys into the wilderness and they're going to have to show up with some credibility in front of Laban, whose rod might they be holding? Lehi's. It's possible that Laman has Lehi's rod. Something that would be recognized with writing, inscription, stuff like that, that Laban might recognize. And so at this moment when he's beating Nephi with the rod, what's he doing? I am in charge. I, Father gave it to me. <laughs> Quit telling us what to do. Shut up! <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I'm exceedingly large, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not murmuring. Shut up! <laughs> it was a symbol of authority, as, as possible. Okay? Now, I do find it interesting, though, so that's option two. It's probably the one I favor a little bit. Option, uh, option number three. Anybody who's going to walk through the wilderness is probably going to have a rod. So there's a pretty good chance they all had their own rods. That's just what you're going to have to defend yourself from. Because there were, not so much now, but there were wild animals in, in there. So it's possible that, uh, in a sense, uh, Laman was hitting him with his rod. Maybe Nephi was trying to defend himself with his rod, and they're kind, of, they're kind of fighting back and forth. But it's a dominant, it's still a dominance thing, yeah. So this is the first case in the Book of Mormon, documented case of rod rage. <laughs> You've just been waiting all day on that one, haven't you? <laughs> For rod rage, yes. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. That was... <laughs> okay. All right. So, questions on that? So, you just get, again, what, what you're getting is this underlying tension through the whole thing. Nephi's trying to make it about, I need to explain to further, further generations about why it is we were fighting over this. And I need you to see that I didn't take, I, I, I didn't become a ruler because I was seeking after it. I became a ruler because of their unwickedness. But to do that, I've got to overemphasize how bad they were. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You almost wonder if Nephi may have used that at times to say, you know, there are a few other brothers, uh, Abel <laughs> uh, and uh, Jacob and Isaac and Joseph and on and on and on where the younger brothers show up, and there's Nephi. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty fascinating, right? Okay. So, one last one. 
that I think bears, bears some interest on this. They're going to go after the plates of brass. Now, th there's some conundrums here uh, that, that as Book of Mormon scholars and Old Testament scholars in the church still have different theories about what it is that they're looking at with the, with the plates of brass. Um, Nephi is going to say, And it came to pass that my father spake unto me, saying, I have dreamed a dream in which the Lord hath commanded me that thou and thy brethren shall return to Jerusalem. And say, Dad, have you seen the desert we just came through? Yeah, I know. You're going to have to go back. Okay. For behold, Laban hath the record of the Jews and also a genealogy of the forefathers, and they are engraven upon the plates of brass. These plates of brass and what exactly was on them, Nephi is using the term, the, the record of the Jews. We're not, we don't know exactly what they mean. But here's what we do know. And it came to pass that later on when, he, when, when Lehi is actually able to sit down and look at it, it came to pass that my father Lehi found upon the place of brass a genealogy of his fathers. Wherefore he knew that he was a descendant of Joseph. Okay, now hang with me for just a second here. Lehi is going to find here a record of his people. And he comes from the tribe of Joseph through Manasseh. Manasseh. Okay? Ishmael is going to be of Ephraim. Lehi's of Manasseh. Okay? Now, where was the tribe and the people of Manasseh when they settled in Israel? They had two half tribes. Right. Where was their, where was their ancestral land? North. It's north. When we talk about the Jews, we're tending to say Jews meaning Judah, meaning Jerusalem and south. Manasseh and the tribes of Joseph and Ephraim, and they kind of tended to call the whole thing Ephraim, they were part of the northern tribes. Where are the northern tribes? The Assyrians took them and headed north with them. They're, at this moment, they're gone, including probably most of their records. So when we talk about the brass plates containing the records of Lehi and his genealogy of his fathers, we're are we talking about the record of Judah primarily? Not as much, though there may have been a lot of that on the plates. Primarily, we're talking about the records of Joseph and the northern tribes, and that stuff is gone. Which is a long ways for me to say we have not, we have a few clues about what was on the brass plates, but it would have contained probably more the records of the northern tribes, Elijah and all that, than it would have Judah and the southern tribes. So we know there were some records that we don't have in the Hebrew Bible, like Zenos and Zenoch and Nahum and those guys, right? But that's because they wouldn't have been in the southern record. They're in the northern record. Okay. When you told us uh, before about the, the people that 
were in the north that had money. Yeah. Yes. I think that's probably how they, so as the, as the Assyrians are pressing down, there's a good chance that this brass plates that Laban ends up with is one of the artifacts carried probably from people in the north, I would guess. And they're probably carrying it to the south before all of that hits. But that also means that that's why the brass plates weren't in the temple that would have had been the records that Josiah was looking at. These are a separate set of plates that Laban, who's not in the temple, has these things. And you're right, they're probably an artifact from the north. Would Lehi have gotten there for the same reason? You wonder if he, Lehi started in the north and came south? Yes. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Although it says they'd been in that, he'd been living there for a long time. But that's, a, that's really a good question. Yeah, Ross? Um, I, I don't know if this is a good question anymore because my feeling of what I've Yeah. Well, that would explain why so we would have what, those. So with problems still in Jerusalem and that part of the country after so, Lehi ends up. Right. Jer Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Yes. That, that's, that's kind of what I'm suggesting to you. That that the fact that uh, there are brass plates that has the records of Lehi's genealogy from the north means that they were probably separate records than what would have been held in the, in the temple treasury and the book of the law up here. they still had the priesthood rights. Yeah. Came through the records. Right. The difference, though, between the brass plates and that is that the brass plates would have been taking those keys, Joseph to Jacob and stuff like that. Yeah. The records that are being kept in Jerusalem after Josiah are heavily redacted. They are rewritten with an emphasis and leaving stuff out. Plain and precious truths were being removed by Josiah. We know that. And, and we know that because you compare the same record with the Babylonian Torah that has a lot more stuff in it, and what we get is a heavily edited Josiah set of plates. So the brass, if they had had the records only from Jerusalem that Lehi had taken instead of the brass plates, We'd had a watered-down kind of thing, but what we got was the brass plates that had more Enoch stuff and those kind of things. We, we were really blessed, actually, to get the brass plates rather than that. Yeah? That Babylonian Torah, did they bring that back when they came back? Mm -mm. No, the Babylonian... He's asking about the Babylonian Torah. Babylon, when the, the short answer to that is that when the Jews came out of... After exile, they come back... Into, into Israel as only half came back. Most of the Jews stayed in Babylon. It's like, you've seen the Hanging Gardens? <laughs> we're going to stay in Babylon rather than go down to the Judean desert. We'll stay here. So at the time of Jesus, there were about a million Jews in Israel. There were about a million Jews in Babylon. There was another million in Egypt. They liked Alexandria better than they liked the Judean desert. <laughs> uh, understandable, okay? All right, so, so what we know then is that these brass plates are really critical because they're going to give us information in the Book of Mormon that, that uh, we wouldn't have had because the plain and precious truths were, were edited out. Does that make sense? That's why I think that's important, okay? Do you think there were 
it out intentionally? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I do. But because if you're going to if you're going to move from what we know about the prophets, where they're receiving visions and dreams and and the prophetic history of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you're going to get to the point where the Deuteronomists under Josiah are going to say, there is only our record, no more visions, no more dreams, only worship at the temple. They had to really edit. Uh, and, and so when you read, like, even the LDS scholars are saying, who wrote the Bible? Because it, change, it changes during that purge. And what the Book of Mormon does is restore stuff that the purge removed. It, maybe that's the best way to say it. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, all right. One last one. I realize we're not necessarily following the story all the way through, but you guys know the story. All right. And, and, and we'll kind of finish with this. It came to pass... At, while, they're, while they're deciding to go back and get the plates, how we're going to do it, after the rod beating, uh, the rod rage. <laughs> and it came to pass that I spake unto my brethren, saying, Let us be, go up unto Jerusalem. Let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he's mightier than all the earth. And, and why not mightier than Laban and his fifty? Yea, even his tens of thousands. Okay? Laban didn't have nearly that. Wherefore, let us go up, let us be strong uh, like unto Moses, for he truly spake unto the waters of the Red Sea. By the way, what did he use to part the Red Sea? A rod. A rod. <laughs> yeah. And they divided hither and thither. You'd almost see him saying, the Red Sea, and he waves the rod. <laughs> okay. They divided hither and thither, and our fathers came through out of captivity on dry land, on dry ground, and the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Now behold, ye know this is true. Come on, you guys know that. You know that an angel has spoken unto you, wherefore can ye doubt? Let us go up, the Lord is able to deliver us, even as our fathers, to destroy Laban, even as the Egyptians. Okay? Now, under Nephi's plan, from his, as a student of the Old Testament, as they all would have been. What else have you got to read? What does he think is going to happen when he goes back into Jerusalem? There's, what, what's the miracle going to be? Well, he says he wants to be strong like Moses, and Moses wasn't strong with the sword. You know, Moses was strong with the priesthood. Yes. And the word of God. That's like, right. Like Enoch. But I find it interesting that uh, the prophet is sent, he leaves, and then he's told, oh yeah, go back. And so he goes back and he does this, and then he's told, oh yeah, go back. And so, so many times in our own lives, we're given a task by our priesthood leaders or by the Lord. Yeah. And we start on it and then we get corrected and we get upset because, you know, I was doing what you told me to do. Yeah. You right. know, and, and we don't allow that maybe God isn't giving us the whole plan all at once. Right. Or that the, the plans that we're going to exercise, it turns out he had something else in mind. Yeah. Daniel? So I was looking at the 
looking at this and it occurs to me that Nephi perhaps envisioned that he was going to find Laban drowned in the Red Sea of wine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In other words, I'm going to go back and what is the Lord going to do? Kill Laban. I won't have to do it. He'll do it. Why? Because that's the way it worked in the past. I know my story. I know my history. God wipes these people out. So I, I'm just going to go, I'm going to pry the brass plates out of his cold dead fingers <laughs> and be out of town in 10 minutes. Keep the car warmed up. <laughs> don't you think he specifically picked a story from Moses for his brothers? Oh, yes. Yeah, you're seeing it, aren't you? In other words, he's sort of beating him with a rod of, the, of history. Remember Moses? That's right. Are you Deuteronomy? Do you believe in the Torah? Yes. Well, let me go to Torah. Let me pull a story from Torah. This is how this works. How come you're doubting? What's wrong with you? Okay. It's, it's a little demeaning. Depending on how he said it and to what extent. Yeah. Saul? Also, when he said, faithful in, uh, let us be faithful in the commandments. Lamb and were like, that's what we are doing. And you are doing something else. So it was there a conflict between um, the way that they were raised because his father was a prophet. That's right. But now his father is more revelation, and he's, they feel like it is changing the things. Ah, yes. It's confusion, and Nephi is. That's what, and there are changes going on, and it's different from what we think. Okay? It's different from what we think. And we suspect that we know how the Lord will do it, and then the Lord does something different, and we go, wait a minute, that's not how it worked. Well, thinking of Laban and Lemuel here, one of my children, you know, she would have a goal. Okay, and so she, there's only one way to achieve this goal. Yeah. And so then when it didn't work out, you know, the world's coming to an end. She was totally devastated. And my mindset most of the time is, okay, that didn't work, so let's find something else. And so I can see Nephi, okay, that one didn't work. There's another one. There's gotta be. And, and by the way, and we've done everything we, we can do. And, well, and see my daughter, but I would approach her, well, okay, let's find another solution. That would only upset her more. <laughs> and so I learned over time to let her have this meltdown and let her, you know, and then at some point she would come to me and say, okay, what else can we do? But in the moment, I needed to keep my mouth shut. And so maybe Nephi had learned that about and didn't keep his mouth shut and let them. Boy, I think that's true. I, I think, again, you, you watch Nephi over time and watch his writing as we go deeper into here. You're going to see less of a contrast than as was striking. And you begin, especially, you see him pleading more than demanding and commanding. Yeah. Yeah, I've climbed a couple mountains in my life. Never went straight up. <laughs> yeah. Never, ever went straight up. 
Always the easiest route up the mountain was incremental increase. Find yeah. the easiest way to get closer to yeah. the goal. Don't just go. Now, I don't know that that's necessarily always true. Yeah. But I think wherever we are, and when we look at our options, we, we need to be looking at what option is the easiest thing for me to do that will help me get closer to my goal. Yeah, and learn, and but we learn from our experience. The Lord gives us spaces like your daughter to say, I'm going to let you learn. I'm going to let you grow because uh, I always find, maybe I'm giving away one of my secrets here as a therapist. My, a lot of times when people come into my office, I can see what they need to do. But if I just tell them, they're not going to do it. So, so my dance is always, how do I get my plan out of your mouth? <laughs> and ultimately, if I can lead it and we can get it there, we can, you can have some experience and stuff like that, and you come back and say, do you know what? I think I might need some medication. And I go, well, that sounds like a really good idea to me. I, I knew that a month ago, but I'm glad you're finally getting there. Okay, yeah, Bishop? Just... Uh you know, not only did Nephi write based on his experience, but we interpret based on our experience. Absolutely we do. I have a good friend, Mohammed Behesh, who grew up in Tehran, Iran. He said the first time he read the Book of Mormon, when he came to this account of Nephi going back and getting the place, and uh, finally cutting Laban's head off the sword, he says he and his friend concluded that was absolute positive proof the book was a fraud. Yeah. Because... He said, based on their culture, anyone who was inspired by God would never have hesitated to have killed Laban. Yes. Hold on to that thought, because that's going to be the basis of our lesson next week. <laughs> because we're, next week we're going to come face to face with one of the great struggles in this whole thing. So, Did he get past that? He got past it. He joined the church, and his family are still faithful members of the church. Oh, I'm going to want to... Hold on to that idea. Come next week. <laughs> um, let, let, let me just finish with this. I remember very clearly, um, those of us a little bit older, we, we do remember the, uh, the 1978 uh, revelation on, on blacks and the priesthood. And, and what an incredibly m amazing experience that was. Um, it was funny, though, the, the Sunday after that, we were, vi we were visiting with my grandfather in Salt Lake. I guess it was like two weeks after this was my grandfather in Salt Lake. And he said that when they announced in sacrament meeting, they kind of read that thing in their sacrament meeting in Salt Lake, there was a, a brother that, that stood up and said, I cannot endorse that. You know, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, yeah, yeah. And just was going off. And he just said, I do, you know, the Lord, is, the Lord has always said this, and now it's this, and it can't be, and, you know, and he, I'm just, I can't endorse this. Okay? Uh, in, and, and it wasn't even fast a testimony meeting. He just <laughs> stood up. Okay? Well, I think what happens is that sometimes when the Lord makes a change, a lot of it's based on the way that we're going to see the, the way that we think things should be done. The question is, do we have the ability, especially when we start to have doubts, to allow the Lord to change things and that we're going to be able to get an answer that things have changed? And I know that we've seen a lot of things under President Nelson. I think there's more to come. 
but that means not being so locked in that we can't recognize that even prophets get to, like your daughter, even prophets get to struggle. Um, sometimes, I, heard a, I heard a scholar uh, just this week talk about the fact that the early history of the church is a series of cul-de-sacs and dead ends. <laughs> the poor Joseph would try this and then they would try this and that didn't work and then they're trying to, the Lord allowed them to adapt and experiment and try a number of things as they were trying to carry out his will. And some things worked and sometimes it didn't and, the, and then there was changes. Sometimes because the Lord just shut up and let them do it. Okay? Um, and what we're going to find with the history of the Book of Mormon is prophets struggling to figure out how to do this. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean if the prophets did it their way, Isaac would have given the birthright to Esau. Yes. Jacob would have married Rachel and not Leah. Yes, that's true. And so there's a lot of things that when even righteous people, when we follow our own judgment, we don't get it the way the Lord wants us to get it. Yeah. In fact, if Brigham had had his way, we'd all be reading the Deseret Alphabet and not even English. <laughs> but there's people trying as best they can. So I think we need to give space to... Uh, especially to local leaders doing the best they can to solve a problem and some things work and some things don't. Uh, and I think that's, that's the message of this. My, my, my testimony is, again, look at the depth of, the, of the, the Book of Mormon, especially the more that we understand and we start to put some history and context behind it, the book should really jump out at us as an ancient record and no way that a, a young man from upstate New York could have pulled this off. Um, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.